I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we have with us again, Dr. Seth Jones, head of our international security program, senior vice president at CSIS. Seth, welcome back and thank you for being here. We're all trying to understand now what's going on. From the media, it seems that Putin might be on the ropes. Today, we heard from US intelligence in declassified reports that Putin seems to be misinformed by his generals and by his senior advisors. Is Russia really losing? We were still seeing an awful lot of damage to Ukraine and to cities like Kharkiv and, and Mariupol. What do you see as happening right now? Well, to the best extent, Andrew, that we can tell, based on Russia's military operations, one of their objectives was to send sufficient numbers of ground forces and to take the capital of Kyiv. That appears to be an important strategic objective. That has not been achieved. In fact, if anything, it looks like the Russians are, at least for now, backing off of Kyiv and focusing their military operations in the east and the south, in areas like Mariupol, connecting Crimea territorial to Donetsk and Luhansk and, and Russia proper. And they have sustained such high losses, both in fatalities and then in casualties, they don't have the fighting force, the size to proceed on multiple axes the way they've been operating. So I think there's no question that the Russians have not achieved their strategic objectives for now. I think the other side of that coin, though, Andrew, is that we have seen the Russians in Chechnya between 1994 and 1996 fail largely, pause, restart the war in 1999, and then over the next decade, succeed in a, in a war of attrition in Chechnya. Syria, they start in 2015, and then continue to this day, seven years later, to fight. So I, I don't think we should expect the Russians to give up. They have suffered some defeats on the battlefield and not achieved objectives, but I do not see Vladimir Putin as ending his objective of trying to weaken Ukraine right now. So that's that's interesting. Weaken Ukraine versus unite the Russian-speaking people with the Russian speakers in Ukraine and unite Ukraine with Russia. You know, the Chechnya strategy that you point to is really interesting. And Carlotta Gall wrote about this in The Times in her reminiscence of covering the Chechen invasion. Even though they're sustaining a lot of casualties, and you made the distinction between fatalities and casualties, casualties being people who are just taken off the battlefield by injury or otherwise, is it going to be Russia's strategy now just to you know light up Ukrainian cities from afar through the air? Through you know they don't they don't necessarily need to engage Ukrainian soldiers in a kinetic way to do massive damage, isn't that right? That's right. So I think big picture. Again, Russia's strategic interest in Ukraine had a lot to do with a Ukraine that had pivoted westward towards the United States, towards the European Union, towards NATO. It indicated a willingness to be a member of NATO and the European Union eventually. And so by Russia moving in to uh, Ukraine, I think they wanted to do this quicker and easier than they've done. They wanted to prevent that from happening. 
And also to send a very clear signal that any other country, Georgia, for example, that wants to move in a similar direction, that they were going to be on the receiving end of Russian conventional operations, airstrikes, potentially a ground invasion. I think they've certainly let other countries know uh, about that. But I, I, I think the focus in Ukraine right now is several fold. One is to punish the country for what it did. And I think that explains to some degree why they're going to continue to target key cities, even Kiev, even if they don't, if they're not able to take it and hold territory, they're going to conduct punishing strikes. But I do think from a, a military operational standpoint, this is why I think it may strategically make sense for the Russians to focus on areas of the East and the South where there are Russian-speaking uh, populations. They already have a foothold in the Donbass. They have an interest in connecting Crimea along the Black Sea to Russia itself. So there are reasons why they're going to want to continue to conduct military operations in addition to just punishing the population that I think this does raise a lot of questions about trying to annex part of Ukraine in the south and east and to expand Russian territory. I mean, they did it in 2014 in Crimea. And now they're trying to expand that further. It's just not going to be as large, it looks like, as they had hoped when the invasion started. Well, so this brings me to another question. Some people think that Putin isn't this, you know, big time loser who's getting, you know, trashed on the battlefield with an ineffective military. Some people think what his real objective all along wasn't to take the whole country, but rather to take the areas that you you just spoke of. And in particular, because it, you know, some view it as a huge energy heist, that Putin really just wants to solidify Russia as the top producer of energy, both oil and natural gas, which Ukraine has a huge bank of in, in Eastern Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, is that really what his strategy is here? No, I, I don't think that's right. I've seen people like Brett Stevens make that argument in the New York Times. I think it's it's actually wrong based on his military moves because Vladimir Putin put a, a relatively significant part of his ground force into the north to surround and ideally take Kiev, and they couldn't do it. So you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't put those type of ground forces and then conduct airstrikes if you weren't going to try to take the capital. Second, you wouldn't uh, put these kinds of forces and sustain these kinds of losses if really you only wanted to take parts of the South and the East. I mean, the number of fatalities and casualties is stunning in context. U.S. estimates are between 10 and 15,000 total Russian combat fatalities with the number of casualties, which include fatalities plus wounded, plus missing in action, and some that have been captured at between 30 and 40,000. Those numbers on the higher end are as large as 10 years of Russia's war in Afghanistan. They're four times as large as 20 years of the U.S. in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. I think it's hard to argue that Vladimir Putin is a strategic thinker and he's achieved most of his objective with the failure to take the capital and with those kinds of losses. They're just too strategically significant, I think, to overlook. 
Do you think the mounting losses are starting to rattle Putin and or his top advisors? I think there's no question. You know, one of the things, Andrew, when you go back and look at the uh, Politburo discussions among the Soviet leadership in the early and mid-1980s, is that by about 1984, and particularly 1985, Gorbachev is getting letters, repeated letters from the mothers of Russian, of dead Russian soldiers. I've, I've read the Politburo transcripts, and for any Russian leader, that is a serious issue to be considering. It's one thing to try to conduct disinformation across the globe, even to your own population, but when you're now dealing with the mothers of dead Russian soldiers, that's a very different place to be in. And that's where he is right now. And, and you know, what's startling, too, is how much the Russians have even left dead Russian soldiers on the battlefield that have been videoed or photographed by others. And I think that takes a toll. This is why I think, Andrew, economic steps are important, the sanctions. Diplomatic steps are important. The political isolation, including isolating you know, discussions about the G20 or kicking the, the Russian soccer team out of the FIFA World Cup in 2022 are all important. But it is the battlefield losses that are the real kicker for the Russians. And this is why I argue that sustained military assistance is the single most important variable going forward, because that's all that Putin primarily understands is military losses. So are we doing enough? I think the the U.S. actually has done a fair amount in providing Javelin anti-tank systems, Stinger anti-aircraft systems, some U.S. now unmanned aerial vehicles or drones in addition to the Turkish ones and other types of weapons and, and material. I think the challenges are twofold. One is it's going to have to be sustained. If Vladimir Putin continues to conduct an attrition approach in Ukraine and continues to fight with regular Russian soldiers, Wagner Group or other private military companies, irregulars like he's done since 2014, then that assistance has to be sustained. So it's not good enough through today. It has to be sustained over the next several weeks and months and possibly years. The, the additional issue is if the Russians start to succeed in some areas on the battlefield, and they've been pushing in the south, including the siege of Mariupol, then I think it will raise lots of questions about other kinds of systems, getting the, the Ukrainians more S-300 surface-to-air missile systems, giving them aircraft that they've been asking for. That's still not direct U.S. or NATO involvement in the war, but if this war becomes a war of attrition and and Ukraine needs sustained military assistance, then I think the U.S. is going to have to think about increasing the types of weapons and systems it provides. Do you have any indication that this administration is prepared to do more at this point? Well, it has been willing to provide more over the past couple of weeks. So, and, and I think one of the things that's certainly been helpful is that other NATO countries have stepped up and that unlike in Chechnya and Syria, there also is a much greater media presence in Ukraine. So it keeps Americans, 
that watch television, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or CNN, they're all watching the war in Ukraine every day and every night. And I think as a all day long, all day wall long, to wall. as long as there is, as, as that continues. See, the Russians didn't have that to have to worry about that in Syria because the Syrian regime was not allowing journalists in. And certainly not in Chechnya And in either. Chechnya, the Russians actually assassinated some journalists that were actually covering what was going on on the ground. So they, they can't control the message in Ukraine. Yeah, because they're not about to start going assassinating journalists. Right. I mean, we there are some journalists that have died, but it's unclear that it was targeted. And either way, they're never going to be able to get rid of the significant number of Western and other journalists in, in Ukraine. There's just way too much riding on this, you know, in terms of, you know, people are really invested around the world watching this. We're not the only country that's watching this with their eyes wide open. I mean, the Europeans certainly are, people in the Middle East certainly are. So, you know, this doesn't seem like the will, at least in the United States, for supporting the Ukrainians doesn't seem like it's going to fade. No. And part of the reason is it's a David and Goliath story. The David here is what what is now, I think, clearly you call, according to the Chinese military revolutionary leader Mao Zedong, a people's war. So as he writes in his On Protracted War, quote, the richest source of power to wage war lies in the masses of the people. The Ukrainian population, partly embodied by President Zelensky, have risen up against foreign invaders. There has been a organized resistance from the Ukrainian military and from Ukrainians that have gone from IT professionals one day to fighters on the battlefield. It is an incredible story. And I think that has inspired people from around the world as well. There's like a, it's like a movie script. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, even men in their seventies and eighties who are in Ukraine picking up their old guns from the days of old, saying, we're, we need to help. Even though we're old guys now, we're still ready to fight. It's pretty amazing. It's amazing. And this is the quintessential problem that I think the Russian leadership, including Vladimir Putin, made, is they underestimated the Ukrainian response. I think what is almost certainly the case is the hope was that a Russian invasion would trigger a collapse of the Ukrainian military, that Ukrainians them themselves would have little faith in Zelensky because of corruption and bad governance, but exactly the opposite has happened. Seth, Vladimir Putin doesn't seem like a guy who cares much about off-ramps, and we keep talking about how off-ramps for him. What do you make of this? I mean, does is there an off-ramp that we can actually give him? The negotiations seemed yesterday like, like they were going somewhere, but today is a different story. Well, I think what the Russians showed in Syria is that diplomacy, particularly where they have a strategic political objective that hasn't been met and they're involved in mili military operations, diplomacy is a way to improve your military campaign. So what they did is they would continue to talk. They agreed to several ceasefires in Syria, use those ceasefires and those, those opportunities where diplomacy was given a chance to push in additional weapons and soldiers to refit and then to move forces into areas where they could advance on the battlefield. And I think this is where a number of U.S. leaders, including the Secretary of State, have said, look, 
it's not about what the Russians say, including on diplomacy. It's about their actions on the ground. And so if we look at Russian actions, they continue to conduct strikes. They're continuing to wage war. So we have to assume in that case that while it's important to have discussions and it's important to hear Zelensky say they would consider some aspect of neutrality, that the Russians at this point do not look like they seriously are anywhere close to being on the verge of a peace deal. Last question. You know, there's a lot of talk still about chemical weapons, of course, about nuclear weapons. At what level do we need to worry about that? Well, I think we need to worry about both. Chemical weapons, the Russians have already uh, been a party to. They used sarin and they used chlorine, among others, in Syria, or at least their allies, the uh, Syrian regime did, and the Russians were involved in the disinformation campaign, and they thwarted the proper investigation of the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons. Chemical weapons can have a tactical advantage in clearing neighborhoods and cities. Obviously, it's a dreadful step and an illegal one in terms of international law. But I would not be surprised if the Russians used chemical weapons. Nuclear weapons, I think, would be a slightly different issue, I think, at least according to Russian uh, military doctrine, they do hold open the possibility of a first use of uh, nuclear weapons. But it would generally be, I think, a case where there was a major threat, particularly from a conventional invasion or the possibility of a nuclear strike of taking out the Russian leadership. I don't think we're there at this point. However, it, it is certainly possible if the Russians continue to lose the way they're losing right now, that Vladimir Putin's ability to stay in power will be subject to, to some doubt. And that might push him to take extraordinary steps. So I do think, at the very least, it's important to think through how the U.S. and its NATO allies would respond to a nuclear strike, even the use of tactical weapons on the battlefield, what would the response be? Would it be Article 5? If tact- what Would the U.S. get engaged in the war if the Russians use nuclear weapons? These are all questions, I think, that have to be asked and partially answered now before the Russians actually do that, if, if they do it. So are we starting to address those questions in a real way? I mean, there have been discussions within the U.S. government across the interagency on uh, a Russian use of chemical weapons as well as with nuclear weapons. My understanding in talking to a number of senior U.S. and NATO officials, though, is there are some disagreements among NATO countries about how NATO and how a number of U.S. and European countries would respond and should respond to the use of chemical weapons and how they would respond to nuclear weapons used in Ukraine as opposed to against NATO countries. So I think there the issue is, will we get to a place where there is an agreement across so many different countries that make up NATO? And I, I mean, my, my understanding is we're, we're not there yet. Seth, thank you very much for helping us understand the latest of what's going on in Ukraine. Really appreciate it. Andrew, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 